Tune into the manifesto hosted by Emily Wheaton, Logan Cook, and Logan Bishop. The Political Science Society's new radio cast. Catch us on local 107.3 FM and wherever you find podcasts. Boom. My name's Logan with my with my co-hosts Emily and Nick. And today our guest is Dominic Carity, MLA for Franklin West Hanwell. That's us. it. Okay. Who wants to start? I'll, I'll start. So we were very excited. Thank you for coming today. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so I was really excited because I study Canadian politics, and I study specifically, like, institutions and cabinet. Um, and this is kind of funny. We were all sitting in our courts and legislatures class last semester, and I think it was, like, right before we were walking in. It was all over Twitter, your resignation. And we were like, wow, what perfect timing. And that's basically what took up our entire class. So thanks for the content. Um, yeah, so obviously, like, you recently made big headlines, not only in New Brunswick, but across Canada, especially in, like, the political science world, um, with your resignation um, letter to Premier Blaine Higgs. We were wondering what led you to this decision. A lot of what led me to there is was detailed in my resignation. And before I start, thanks for having me on the No podcast. problem. Nice, nice to meet you. It's like the horrible weather, but... Canada in January, what are you going to do? Uh, so the big, starting in March last year when the Premier negotiated with the People's Alliance, you know, populist, right-wing party, history of being anti-French, lots of questionable statements around the convoy last year, all kinds of other things, those folks were brought into the party without any discussion with the Cabinet or the party. That doesn't really sit well with me. I, don't, I think that we should have consultations around changing the shape of the party that would be as radical as that. Uh, and uh, that didn't happen. So that started to make me think, you know, this is probably getting to the end of my time serving in this cabinet. Over the course of the next few months and talking to people close to me, saying, like, I think I'm probably going to resign soon, a number of them, especially folks in and around government, said, can you hold off? We've got a bunch of files that we need to get done. And I thought about that, and there were things that I wanted to get finished as well. So I sort of pushed and pushed, but it became pretty clear over the summer that the Premier was going to insist against all evidence on moving to make radical changes to the French immersion system without any plan, any human resources, just done out of an ideological conviction that that program needed to end. And over the time I'd been minister, we built this, the team of the department, when I say we, we built this incredibly carefully balanced plan to reform education. It started with reforming literacy instruction, which is already in place, and we're seeing scores for our kids in grades uh, in K1 and 2 going up around 40% of kids reaching levels and over 90% reaching levels. But those changes have just been rolled out the last couple of years. So the te- those teachers are already having to adapt to something really new. And to suddenly tell them that now they're going to have to deal with 50% French, 50% English, with no prep time, on top of the other changes we were moving to make on inclusion and classroom composition, which is just a fancy way of saying the total lack of discipline in the classroom that the teachers have no ability to control, trying to work on those two files at the same time. And there's this belief sometimes in politics where if you just say something loud enough and often enough, you can make it real, and you can't. The laws of physics still apply. So in the end, I was not willing to sign off on a plan that I knew would hurt New Brunswick's kids, and I wasn't also willing to sign off on the attacks the Premier was making against the civil servants in the department, because he was falling into the trap that lots of politicians do when they're late in political life, when they start to centralize more and more power into their own office and into themselves, and start to take decisions based on what they think is right. 
because they believe they're good, they're good people, because most people in politics do. And most people are. But the reason we have all the structures that build up, as you know, as a student of parliamentary and cabinet structures, is you need to have those checks and balances so that that small group of people who you have, a, as Premier, has appointed to sit around the cabinet table and say, we're there to tell the Premier when they're wrong, who, no matter who it is. And Although that probably doesn't happen very often. It, it actually does happen a good amount. Okay. To give Premier Higgs credit, because I'm like you, I'm also a student of, uh, of comparative politics and looking at how cabinets and governments work around the world. But the first couple of years of the Higgs government, and even the year or so after the 2020 election, when we went from a minority to a majority, the Premier did listen. And there was a lot of battles back and forth in cabinet. And okay. By what I've heard from having been an advisor to many governments around the world in my old life before I moved home to get involved in politics here. In comparison to all those governments, the first few years of the Higgs government, way above average. That oh. changed over the last 18 months, now two years ago. And there was that slow centralization. Again, not abnormal, but in that situation, a cabinet minister has a responsibility to use their office to say, I'm no longer willing to put up with this. And I always sort of try my whole time in politics. I wake up in the morning, Am I doing today the best thing for myself, for the province? And I stopped being able to say yes to that question until I quit. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested in your letter because it's not very often that you get to hear what happens behind closed doors, essentially, because cabinet secrecy is such an intense thing. Um, so I guess what I was wondering was what made, what encouraged you, I guess, like why did you make your resignation letter so public? Because I think the you have a range of tools at your disposal as a minister. And so the first is quiet influence inside. And so I used that as much as I could. And I had you know, multiple battles with the Premier and sometimes with colleagues over the years, as did my other colleagues with the Premier. And that's just, that's normal in how things are supposed <laughs> to work. That's good. When you feel like you're not being listened to anymore, clearly the Premier should put someone else in to replace you. But at the same time, the issues I was resigning over were ones that I thought pretty fundamental to education system, and there was an effort to keep them secret. Mm. And that was the part that I couldn't tolerate. The idea that we were going to try and pretend, as we can now see with this ridiculous plan that the government is trying to impose, saying that this is an innovative immersion plan. Let's, let's get back to, forget about second language, let's go back to first language. My first language is English. The word immersion means being immersed in something. Immersed means all the way in. You cannot immerse someone in a waiting pool. And a class that's 50% in French and 50% in English is not immersive. It's a waiting pool. So we've got to start talking about uh, what words mean and get back to actually treating that seriously because the, la uh, the sort of loss of respect for words and truth and reality is something that's wrecking our politics and wrecking democracy at the moment. And I didn't want to be any part of that. Okay, interesting. Um, so obviously, like, in the nature of Canadian government, party loyalty... Um, is a very important thing. Do you think that this is a bad thing necessarily, or do you think that there should be more autonomy for elected representatives, especially, I guess, um, when you are in cabinet? It's, it's a balance that you've got to absolutely sign on to cabinet confidentiality and solidarity. The only time you can break that as a minister in a, in a legal and legit way is if you resign the things that are in your resignation letter, even if they were cabinet confidences, you can break them. That's a, a sort of the one get a jail free card you get as a minister is that parting shot if you want to take it and overall the Westminster system in the UK is really copied basically yeah. people are allowed to criticize the leaders all the time there are, there are MPs in the labor benches and MPs in the Tory benches over there who 
never vote with their parties. And that makes you sort of wonder why they stay in those parties, but that's another problem. But yeah, they will they will vote against their government, their own government in many cases, hundreds of times in some cases, with no consequences. Canada has a very centralized system where a lot of the power has been moved into the leader's office, whether it's the premier or the prime minister, much more than in the UK. So it was interesting because just a couple of weeks before I quit, in that very brief period that no one will remember in a year's time when Liz Truss was British yes, Prime Minister, yeah. Swella Braverman was in her cabinet and she quit. And she wrote a letter that was pretty equivalent to the one that I wrote to Premier Higgs. There was no question of her not sitting as a Tory member. She just left the cabinet. Yeah. And the idea that premiers have and prime ministers have, that they somehow control the party, not just the government, and also they believe they control the caucus, which they're not supposed to do. Yeah. We're supposed to have three legs of the system. There's the party, outside of the government, outside of the legislature, the caucus, and then if you're the government, you get the government as well. Three separate things. The premier runs one of them. Yeah. They're not the leader of the caucus. The leader of the caucus is supposed to be the caucus chair. The leader of the party is the party president. But too often, party leaders take on uh, all three of those jobs, and we've seen the results of that, which is people losing more and more interest in parties, parties becoming more and more the, the creatures of the leader that shift and turn based on what a leader wants, but increasingly that gets away from the party's constitution. So I, as I argued in my letter, I am defending the PC party's constitution. And I, remember, I remain a member of the PC party, and I'm continuing to uphold the constitution of that party, I would argue the premier isn't, but mm. he is using uh, his position in a way that's unfortunately become kind of normal in Canadian politics. Were you expecting to be expelled from the PC caucus? Uh, it wasn't. A, I knew it was absolutely a possibility, and uh, the premier has uh, tend, he's a fairly emotional guy, and I figured that he would probably lash out in some way. And uh, I certainly wasn't expecting to be prevented from attending a meeting that discussed what I had done. That was kind of having to hear from colleagues about uh, uh, about a, a sort of a show trial where there was only a prosecution and no defense. Mm. I think I, I don't think the premier did himself any favors in the way he handled that. But that's his call. I've got my calls to make, and I'm comfortable with the ones I did. I've been hogging the questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I talk too much. So tell me to shut up. I didn't know this is... Yeah, politicians, you get me wrong. <laughs> no, this is lovely. You understand not just obviously having worked in the field, but actually understand the terminology and the differences in a leading caucus and leading government. Um, so, I mean, we've talked a lot about bilingualism. What do you think, ideally, bilingualism should look like in New Brunswick? Well, it'd be nice if we could move to the, the point that... I always use the UK as an example, where yeah, you have the Brits were fighting the French for, what, about a thousand years? And we now have a higher level of French language capacity in the UK than we have in New Brunswick. Oh my gosh, I oh, did not know that. that. <laughs> that's not abnormal. Like you look at most, most countries in the world, learning second, third, fourth languages is totally just a regular thing you do at school. Mm -hmm. And But because of the history in New, in New Brunswick and a bit more broadly in Canada, where you know something we often forget, we are the only place in the entire planet where those two huge old global empires, the British and the French, where the direct descendants of the settler communities from the English and French side, where they live together in one political unit and share powers equally, according to our uh, constitution and the way that New Brunswick acts within the Canadian constitution. So that's very cool on the one hand, but we managed to do that for a long time by just living totally separate lives. That you know, The English ran everything, we kept the French up north, and mm. everyone just ignored it. So my idea would be bilingual New Brunswick, a couple of steps. First, we've got to increase the quality and opportunities for Anglophones to learn French. Not by just making endless stupid announcements about it, by actually having a plan to do it, which sadly 
we had in place and it was rolling out. I would guess that none of you had heard about the extensive pilot programs and reforms taking place on French, for French language training in the English school system over the last two years. A bit about it. My parents are teachers. Okay. So. But, yeah. but most people didn't hear anything about it because we did it with the buy-in of the teachers, of the teachers' unions, and we kept the opposition on side because in the end, if you strip away the bullshit that permeates too much of politics, most people kind of want the same things on most files. I mean, mm -hmm. there's crazy people on the left and the right, but in the broad center, there's a desire to try and make things better. And if you're running a school system that offers French, you would figure that a way to make things better would be to increase the quality of that program and let more people access it. And New Brunswick right now, 40% or so of Anglophone kids can't access French immersion. They're in schools that don't offer it. Uh, and immersion, even in the way it's currently offered, is too often watered down. Where I went through French immersion in the 70s and 80s, and immersion was you talk French the moment you get off the school bus until the moment you get back on the school bus, and you got in serious trouble for talking back then at the strap, which obviously I'm not advocating oh my back to that. Mine but, was more like if you're speaking French during recess, you get like a token, and then you can buy a desk pet. It was not the strap. <laughs> there you go. So you get a more positive incentive. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and I think it, and it sort of ties into an interesting change in schooling and in our culture in the last 40 years about a, a real decline in standards of discipline yeah. and resilience and an expectation that kids can't be too, you can't push them to do too much. That's, not, that's a conversation for another day. But the, the system we have right now is already so weak uh, and isn't turning out kids at the required level. So some sort of change was necessary. So first change in the school system, absolutely. But the next thing we need to do is we need to start talking about building in a New Brunswick identity that actually brings people together. But before we can do that, we need to actually build consciously a New Brunswick Anglophone identity that's positive, not racist, not exclusionary, doesn't look down on people. And we have one of the best models for that in the entire world with the Acadians and the French community in New Brunswick who've managed to build up over 50 years a cultural community that had been suppressed and repressed for hundreds of years, with given no opportunities, you'd be you know, up to the 60s, you'd be kicked out of school if you spoke French, you couldn't work in French. And the, you know, the level of discrimination was equivalent to the levels that were experienced by lots of the black communities in the States after the Civil War and through the 20th century. And we often forget about that. And rather than it creating a really sort of vengeful, backwards-looking uh, cultural community, the Acadians have made this had made it about celebration and openness and including people, regardless of whether you speak French or are from a French-speaking family or not, and really trying to open up and show that this is a, something to be proud of, making it fun. Whereas in Anglo New Brunswick, we tend to spend most of our time complaining about Francophone New Brunswick and what they get, complaining about Alberta and what they get, complaining about Ontario and what they get, Nova Scotia and what they get, on United States and what they get, and we end up, even though we're a majority in our own province, acting like a minority that's being besieged. And we don't have much that unites us. You talk to any Francophone New Brunswicker, and nearly all of them can identify poets and artists and even lawyers and people who've been standard bearers that have sort of helped lift their community up. You ask an average New Brunswicker, name three New Brunswick musicians, three New Brunswick authors, who you're, who you're proud of as New Brunswickers that represents our province. And we just don't have those names at the tip of our tongues. So, Building cultures has to be a conscious act because if it isn't done consciously, it's done unconsciously, and when it's done unconsciously, it usually slides into bigotry, intolerance, and exclusion. And we've seen that multiple times with the core party, I'd argue to a lesser extent with the People's Alliance more recently. So get the education system right, which is both linked and somewhat separate. 
building your Brunswick identity, but that has to come first with Anglo New Brunswickers getting together and actually figuring out what, it, what do we mean when we talk about an English New Brunswick culture and trying to make that again into something that's positive and we can help make the province better. I'll take this one. Do you think the geographic cleavages in the electoral map are damaging to NB politics? How can a PC government and or a liberal government appeal to all? Uh, I mean, yes, they, they do create divisions because they add another dimension to that language and cultural division that's already there. Mm -hmm. So the more that you have that division existing, the more that parties, regardless of right or wrong, will make pragmatic political decisions about trying to reach out to voters, which are more likely from the liberal side to exclude Anglophones, more likely from the PC side to exclude Francophones. Yeah. And that's just an inevitable consequence of politics and trying to, trying to win. And if you're trying to look at how you get to a destination, if you have to drive over a muddy patch, you might do that. If you take the straight road, you might do that. But you can't blame people for taking the, the, the muddy track if that's the one that's going to lead them in the right direction. Might not be the right thing to do. Some people might choose not to do it, but it's likely going to happen. So yes, it's bad. How do we fix it? Fix it by actually, again, having some offering that I would say right now, we need to talk about culture and language in the way that I described. But one of the big things we need to do is we got to stop talking about politics the way we did when all of us were growing up. The entire democratic world is facing imminent collapse. And we've got to start being a lot more aware of the moment of crisis that we are in right now. You know, we have the world's second largest economy in China, where at their Congress a few months ago, they explicitly made it their doctrine to say that they are aiming to destroy Western democracies. And we depend on the Chinese economy for just about everything. You can go and look around in this room and go and pick up every single product and see what's made in China. And of course, they make cheap stuff, so we buy the cheap stuff. Mm -hmm. We've forgotten because we went through this weird period of amnesia as a culture that it's maybe not the best thing to buy products that are cheap because they're being made by slaves in a country where there are three million people in concentration camps in the, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang province, which is being ethnically uh, cleansed by the Chinese government, and the millions of other Chinese who are being oppressed in different ways, and an entire country that's living in a, you know, a vicious dictatorship using technology in a way that we can't even imagine here to surveil people 24-7 and to monitor them and to connect their every little action with consequences. You hear some of the crazy conspiracy theorists talk about you know, the evils of China and the Communist Party. But I'm not underestimating the, the challenge we face there with a government that has something called a social credit scheme in place where if uh, you, let's say you say to uh, say to me that, you know, I just, I'm really kind of tired with how, uh, how the school system is working here. I could then go and register a negative note for you on my cell phone, which would be recorded by the government if your score drops down low enough, you would not be able to use public transit. You wouldn't be able to get a passport. You wouldn't be able to choose where you live in the country. You wouldn't be able to, not joking, access dating sites based on your social Whoa. credit score. So this is all stuff with technology that exists right now, which is being weaponized by a, a government that we too often ignore what's going on in that country. So this is a, sounds a hell of a long way from New Brunswick, but that is a country right now that is strong, growing, and confident. And they believe they have come up with a better model than ours. The Russians are going through their weird uh, sort of medieval moment right now, and hopefully that'll end quickly with their defeat. But we're also facing a, a war in Europe, which no one's faced in our lifetimes and even many of our parents' lifetimes. So I think what we need to offer New Brunswickers, if anyone's serious about politics, is how do we keep the lights on here? 
when the world starts to disintegrate a little bit more. What do we do when the Americans stop being a reliable ally? Which hopefully won't happen. I have a lot of admiration for the United States, mm -hmm. but it's not going in the right direction right now. And we've lived off the backs of the US as a country for our entire existence. We depend on them for our security. You know, the, we have a massive undefended border with Russia in the Arctic, rapidly melting. The Russians have nuclear submarines. They've planted Russian flags on the seabed along a frontier that they claim is their border. Internationally, it's recognized as being Canadian territory. In that contested zone, there are billions of dollars of natural resources. Who is going to protect those resources when the Russians have got a fleet of multiple all-year-round capable icebreakers, nuclear submarines and others? We have nothing. We have no submarines that work that can go under the Arctic ice cap. We don't have any Arctic icebreakers. And all that to say, five years' time, if we have someone nuttier than Trump in the White House, who's going to come and protect us if the Russians decide that maybe that's the next spot that they try and move to take? No one. No. Europeans are in a state of chaos. The Americans would be. It's a long way away from Europe, and if we can't protect yep. ourselves. So there's a whole lot of things that we haven't thought about for a long time. And what scares me when we talk about New Brunswick politics is that we spend a lot of time talking about things that really don't matter very much. And some things that do matter absolutely in the day-to-day -day life of people, but nothing about that bigger picture. We've got to get our healthcare system fixed, our education system fixed. Yeah. But if we don't start looking at those bigger issues and making sure that we have a provincial government that's putting pressure on our federal government and standing up in the forums where Canada has an independent voice, or New Brunswick has an independent voice itself to say, what are we doing about this exactly? You know, what is our plan to transition to a green economy here? Because right now, you know, we have a politics that's just divided between people saying there are no problems or else the world is ending. And nothing in the middle about how, uh, on a green economy, how do we take the economy we have right now and use the wealth that's being created through fossil fuels and a history of colonialism and extraction to make things better, to set an example for the rest of the world, at least do that good thing out of the bad things that we've done as a country. Nothing like that. It's either climate change isn't real or we have to go back to living in the trees because you know, turning on the heat is easy. It's just foolish. People aren't going to do that. And so the longer that we have sensible politicians playing to the extremes rather than trying to come up with centrist solutions to things, we're screwed. So what we need as a province to overcome that gap between English and French is a political project that appeals to Anglophones and Francophones based on the real concerns that we have as a country. Mm -hmm. Because what we've seen is the nutcases are getting together. That when I was first elected back in 2018, because I, I really can't stand anti-vaxxers and annoy them as much as I can, because it just represents to me like the, the, the sort of the failure of our civilization to educate people about you know, what's real, really, that those folks also tended to write a lot of, the English ones would write nasty anti-Francophone letters as well, because they were the same sort of, you know, the same types of folks, it's like, well, environmentalism is bad, and the French are taking all the jobs, and all the usual stuff that you hear. That's stopped completely, because I now get letters in English and in French from the same people who used to write me nasty letters in English, fewer in French, because I now get more about this subject in French, and they're all writing about the crazy conspiracies. So unifying messages are being put out there, but they're being put out by the crazy people who are trying to rip our country down, and in some cases are literally funded and directed by the Russians and the Chinese. And I, mean, I, sat, I remember saying this in the legislature in 2018, people were like, wow, you sound like, you talk about conspiracies, my God, you sound like, but like the last four or five years, it's pretty damn clear that's what's happening. 
All of our intelligence agencies agree that's what's happening. The head of Canada's defense staff, see, interested, you guys as interested in journalism and current events, do any of you know that the head of our armed forces last year said we are at war with China? Did not know that. Yeah, in, I remember seeing it. In, he said that in the House of Commons at a, at, a, at a committee hearing in the House. And he said that we, we don't think we're at war with China, but they are saying they are and acting accordingly. And obviously with Russia, what else do you call it when we are spending tax, Canadian tax dollars on weapons that are going to use to kill one side in a war? I totally support that, but we just live in this fantasy, this fluffy land in Canada where we pretend that oh, everything's fine and nothing's really going to matter much unless you keep on arguing about waiting lists at hospitals and things. We need to argue about waiting lists at hospitals, but we've got to remember that part of the reason we have that problem is because of a worldwide shortage of skilled labor, because of all these other issues that all link in together. And we have got to stop living in this little bubble and assuming that uh, Big Brother to the south of us is going to keep looking after us, because I don't think they're going to. And we are facing a difficult 10, 20 years coming up. Possibly this is going to be the bottom and we'll be, have a jump start to a much better world, but possibly we're facing a, a real moment of, of civilizational inflection, which could be in the end a lot of the things that make this a pretty great place to live. And I would argue that Canada is probably one of the best places to live today in the history of our planet. And with all of our crimes and sins in the past, that we also have fairly uniquely a culture that tends to acknowledge that we've committed crimes and sins mm -hmm. and to try and fix them. Most countries, it's illegal to talk about bad things you're doing. Here we talk about it a lot, and that's good. But if we don't remember the, the good things as well as the bad, I think we're going to be screwed. Okay, so speaking of COVID, obviously you were in a very interesting position during the pandemic. Um, we all watched you on TV tell us that we were not going back to school for two weeks. Sorry about that. No, it's not <laughs> your fault. Well, it kind of was. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, we were watching the video of you being heckled uptown in St. John um, like two years ago, I guess now, which is crazy to think about. Um, I'll put Max Bernier in the game. Yeah. Um, I guess I was wondering, like, did you, res I'm assuming you received a lot of backlash for closing schools initially and then continued to throughout the next couple of years of the pandemic. It, it changed back and forth. The, uh, the, first, the first couple of days, Everyone just thought I was you know, something seriously wrong with me. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Because I was New Brunswick was one of the very first places. In yeah, the world I remember that. And uh, I still remember the head of the, I guess she was the past head of the New Brunswick Medical Society, calling to complain about the kids who'd gone on the, on the trip to Italy, mm -hmm. not being allowed to go back to school, and talking about how totally terrible this was and everything else. And they put it. So she actually, sorry, we had she called me up and we had a fight, and said I wasn't going to change the position. And she said, well, I'm going to make the Medical Society put out a press release condemning this. Okay. So they did. That same day, the first case in New Brunswick, and that same day, everything started to shut down. And so I am lucky in my job that I was obviously dropped in my head as a baby or something, but I don't particularly care if people don't like me. Mm. And that was very helpful over the last two years because there were a lot of people who didn't like me. <laughs> And it, and it changed from time to time. So we went from initially people who, upper middle class parents who were irritated that I was uh, mucking up their kids' uh, return to school after a nice field trip. Uh, people who then thought for the first few days after that that I was exaggerating. It was fun a couple of weeks later then seeing some of those same people writing to complain that I hadn't shut things down fast enough. Yeah. Uh, and then, but then that tied into this movement around vaccines, which I had already been battling before COVID arrived, saying that we've got to. 
I was arguing that we needed to have mandatory vaccinations for kids in the school system because I would argue that it's kind of the same thing to make sure kids don't die of preventable vaccine, uh, vaccinable diseases. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to convince uh, two of my colleagues of that, and that vote was lost by two in the in the legislature. But that sort of set, that put a bit of a target on me with the global anti-vaccine movement. So, over through the the pandemic, every New Brunswick politician was bombarded with at least thousands of emails. I had way over twenty thousand direct COVID-related emails, and. Uh, Included in that were several hundred death threats. Um, yeah, that's a very unfortunate side of Politics. being a politician. These days, with social media, because people feel that anonymity that they can yeah. just do whatever they want. Yeah. And, uh, and then, interestingly, after the COVID restrictions were removed last spring, which a lot of people felt was politically motivated, which one of the things that being out of cabinet, I can say freely that. I know 100% for sure that is not the case, that we never, there was never any effort that I was aware of, saw, or participated in, or heard of inside government to apply pressure on public health to remove restrictions before they felt it was appropriate. Whether that was the right call or not, you know, that's, history's going to judge. But we did, in New Brunswick, from beginning through to this phase of the pandemic, at least my time around the cabinet table, respect public health instructions and directions. And uh, just, just about without exception. And certainly lots of questioning and pushing I mean, at the beginning, I was the one pushing because they didn't want to shut things down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the after the restrictions came off, another group who were on the side of saying we should always maintain the restrictions pretty much forever came up, and they started sending me hate mail as well. So it was nice. Some days I get one, I get one second, I get an email from some crazy anti-vaxxer saying that I was I wanted to inject microchips because I was being paid by Bill Gates, and the next second I get someone who's saying that I was being you know, paid by the Republican Party to try and kill people by making them take the masks off. So. I figured that we could just get those guys in the room together. That would save me some time. This is a weird story, <laughs> but um, during the federal election, like your friend and mine, Nick Pereira, he ended up coming to campus um, because they were doing... I don't think you can ever use the word coming when you're talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I did not expect this turn. Okay, he attended an event <laughs> on campus. Oh my gosh. Well, Do you feel I, like you can speak a lot more freely now that you're not in cabinet? I, I kind of spoke like this when I was in cabinet. So there was an um, event on campus that was a um, candidates debate, and he ended up being the one podium. He came in late. He attended late. <laughs> he attended late. And the only podium that was left was randomly one that had a plexiglass on it. Do you guys remember this? And it was oh, a yeah. very big thing. Like, medical apartheid. Like, he was throwing out such intense words. And I just sat there and tried not to laugh my head off. It was so uncomfortable. It was like your first month on campus, too. Yeah, yeah. You were new to the campus, and you were just like, don't hurt me. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it talk was about a way to turn people off coming to UMBA stairs. Like, you should put some sort of guarantee in the promo material. It's like, you will not have to deal with Nick Pereira if you come to UMBA oh, stairs. Oh. Oh, um, yeah, but... It was a really weird experience. <laughs> well, I think the last few years have been kind of just a really weird experience in general. In Espe- yeah, <laughs> especially for poli-sci students, like with the Freedom Convoy happening, it's been a very eventful time, because our prof usually starts out class with saying what's new in Canadian politics. And then everyone starts crying and hides under the table. <laughs> there were some people that were just like refusing to talk about it because of how just like divis- divisive everything was, but... 
Yeah. It's definitely, it was definitely an interesting time to be a poli-sci student. Well, who could have imagined when you guys were younger that you would have a politics where you would have someone like Nick Pereira being a candidate for a party that was running in every single seat in the country just about. You know, it's astonishing that you, that our system would have failed so badly and then the party system would have failed so badly not to filter out people like that who are clearly um, what is a non suable way to describe this. Well, a guy who literally makes his money off giving workshops to people and not masturbating. I mean, this is yeah. not usually enough. I think if you'd ask most people, what's, what's the main criteria you want in your MP? Is their positions on masturbation would be low or not. <laughs> I know there are most American Republicans maybe might, might have that, but that's another problem. And uh, But this is, it's, I mean, we're, we're really into a weird moment in politics where we're, it's become a, a sort of a horrifying reality TV show with sort of how can we get as many, and I don't mean strange people in the old school way of that because I grew up as sort of an odd kid and I was like a goth in school and dressed in black all the time and all my friends were the weirdos. So I'm not, no disparagement of strange people, but of people who have points of view that are entirely unsupported by reality and are incredibly aggressive about expressing them. And they now control our politics. And so we have a politics of, not the parties, mainstream parties yet completely. We can get on to making some nasty things about Pierre Polyers later and Justin Trudeau. But the, we just don't have a politics anymore that's based on, on fact. You know, again, we sit, we're sitting here on the holy spice about healthcare. And healthcare is pretty straightforward. We already have a private healthcare system. All of our doctors are private business people, all of them, except for the ones who work on salary for the government, which is a tiny, tiny number. And we pretend that they don't. We pretend they're civil servants because we sort of copied our healthcare system from the Brits, and the Brits do have that where nearly all of them are government employees. Here we don't. And then we have these huge fights about whether or not we should let those same doctors perform procedures that are not available in hospitals in private clinics, whether it's abortion, hip replacements, anything else. Why do we care? All I care about is whether or not Canadians can get free healthcare on the point of delivery, not have to pay out of their own pocket. Who provides that? I could give a damn. So why aren't we talking about how we can actually just make sensible changes that protect what was supposed to be the core of a public health care system, which is access to good health care? So when I hear someone telling me that, oh, we can't expand the role of the private sector in health care because uh, it's going to undermine public health, well, what public health if you can't go in and actually ever see a doctor or a nurse? And if you are still not going to pay yourself, why do we care if the provision, the provision model is, is public versus private, as long as the payment model is public. So there's all these sort of areas where that's a huge, that would take a huge amount of pressure off the system. Letting in foreign trained medical professionals, which they will not do. The medical society will not let us bring in doctors and nurses from other countries. They can, nurses would be much better, but the doctors, I said a doctor a couple of years ago, so I was, this is, always just drives me crazy, this guy actually said this, head of a major hospital in New Brunswick. And I was arguing about credential recognition. He said, well, you can't just let anyone come in. I said, okay, fine. But let's say, like, Brits, French, Belgian doctors. Well, no, no, they don't necessarily have the same standards we do. So I said, okay, great. So we've got this healthcare system where this, our standards are so high that you can't actually access healthcare. But because it's free, that somehow makes it fine. So if it's free and no one can use it, how's that a healthcare system? It ends up being a government employment system. And we should absolutely have government employees paid well and given proper benefits and everything. But the point of a public healthcare system is to provide public healthcare, and we don't do that anymore. So when are we gonna start talking about those sort of things and making more radical changes? 
Why don't we? Because governments don't want to piss off the medical society because doctors are rich and powerful and lobby governments. And so even a government like the Higgs government, which was more confrontational than some in, in addressing some problems that needed to be addressed and some others that didn't, anyway, that we didn't uh, still never actually had that battle because it's a huge and costly one. But until those battles are ready to be had, our system's going to keep on getting weaker. And if our healthcare system, just like our justice system, our education system, our social services, all of those are going to continue to get weaker. And the weaker they get, the more pissed off people get. And the more pissed off they get, the more they look for solutions from radical, idiotic ideas that have been tried and failed, like fascism and communism. And those are both bad. And unless we get people who don't want that organized in some sort of political movement to stop it, we are in for a horrible time. Because our society is so complicated and fragile that if we don't figure out how to maintain it properly, have people who get how complicated it is and how delicate it is and how all these interrelated parts have to work together, it's going to start to creak and break. And once it breaks, people will be mad and they won't want to pay taxes anymore. And we'll be off to the races and we'll be part of the same horrible cycle that people like Oswald Spengler talked about 150 years ago about cycles of civilizations, about how they rise and fall. It'd be nice if we could buck that trend and actually preserve rights for gay people, minorities, regular people who aren't millionaires, good services for people, nice roads, all those things. But if we don't believe we can do that, it's not going to happen. Do you want to ask a question next one? Sure. Uh, you were just talking about doctors lobbying the government. That leads going to this question is, how powerful did you feel lobbyists slash non-elected powers were in the Higgs government? Vastly less than I think people would think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Interesting. It was one of the things that was, and I, I sort of enjoyed that I, because of my resignation letter, I made reference to the line the Premier used when he was attacking my then Deputy Minister, Mr. Daly, uh, after being presented with a binder of information about what was going on in the school system. And his response was, data my ass. And some clever person, because it's 2023, went and started uh, getting like t-shirts and mouse oh, yeah. and stuff. Memes were everywhere. <laughs> everywhere. Well, you can imagine what my Christmas gifts were like this year. Oh. <laughs> Uh, but the one thing that I didn't like about those is they were all done in the Irving logo. And the one thing I can say is that Premier Higgs learned a lot from the Irvings, some good and some bad, because mm -hmm. Irvings are a it's a strangely run business, right? This sort of vertical family business, and it's not a, it's just, it's not the way a normal private sector business works. Forget about the government. Um, and the spirit, the idea of sort of chaotic, chaotic, disruptive management that we should keep everyone on their toes all the time to get more out of them. I don't think that necessarily works very well. And it definitely doesn't work in the civil service where if you start to get too chaotic and disruptive, everyone just hunkers down, protected by union contracts, and waits till the government gets changed. So you end up by not getting uh, what you want. But there were certainly people who lobbied on big files and small, but I'm aware of a number of occasions that I can't talk about for cabinet competency where people who you would have expected would have gotten what they wanted, who not just didn't get all of what they wanted, they didn't get anything. Um, and uh, that happened fairly consistently. So overall, I think that depends a lot on the personalities of the people who are running a government because mm -hmm. some people are more, and like we've all got friends who will do pretty much whatever <laughs> their friends tell them to, right? And others who absolutely won't and kind of won't on principle if their friends ask them to. And if there's a type that Premier Higgs would fall into, it would be definitely more the latter, that you know, one of the concerns I had from people around me when I was calling him to resign a few weeks ago because someone, a journalist asked me and I expected that for a while and so I, I said yes I thought he should but 
So my advisor didn't express concerns that if you say that, that's just going to make it less likely to resign. You should just say, oh, he's great. He should stay for, I think a premier head should stay for 2043. Please. <laughs> uh, but so I think that. Would he live that long? That's really bad to say. <laughs> uh, that's really bad to say. I only say that because oh, no. I don't like. Really, I'm really sorry. That's really bad to say, and it's oh, recorded. No. I just hate how old white men like he's. It's so dumb that he's the highest. Like he has so much power in New Brunswick, and he's super old, and he's super white, and super anglophone. I digress. Sorry. But it's that's. It depends on that sort of generation, though. So I'm, I give a, a defense for very old, very white, very anglophone in a very limited way, is that he has a strong belief in an ideal of public service and of doing the right thing regardless that I think he's often wrong about and he has a weakness in not consulting broadly enough. So he list, he's increasingly just listening to his own idea of what's right. Mm. But he does act, he is actually operating from a, a, a sort of a framework there, which is obviously something I strongly disagree with in lots of ways, but we're talking about that. Agreed enough with him in some of the things he did that I was happy to work for him. But what scares me more than people like that are people of all ages, and there's a horrifying number of them in their 20s and 30s involved in politics, who don't believe in anything except for advancing their cause, which is often not even a policy cause. When you look at the number of young Republican Congress people in the States, people in their 20s and 30s are just state level than Washington, it makes me bonkers. And people on some on the left who are insane, generally the right is certainly, the right's always more organized and therefore more dangerous. Uh, but it's a, the problem we have at the moment, I think, is of people who are, have really embraced the sort of postmodern approach to politics that uh, has been talked about in Russia for a long time. This guy named Peter Pomerantsev wrote a great book called Nothing is Real and Everything is Possible. And it's sort of, it's the way the Russians sort of took the ideas from Orwell's 1984 and rather than thinking this was terrible, thinking this is great. Having people believe two things simultaneously that are completely contradictory and there being no problem with that. And that is, I think we're seeing the decline of the old school lobbying old white guy politics and it's being replaced by something that is very different and much more chaotic and uh, I think is going to be even more dangerous in part because it's impossible to figure out uniquely where it comes from because social media and the internet allow sort of the anonymous transmission of so much information that, that mobilizes so many people in politics in a way that this didn't even 10 years ago, even five years ago. So what would you say would be the biggest difference, because obviously you were a leader of the NDP party for a while, about six years in total. What would you say would be the biggest difference as a leader between yourself and Premier Higgs? I enjoy criticism, and he doesn't. Yeah, that's a good Straight one. Straight to the point. Yeah, and an important one to have in the leader. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I quite possibly go, you know, if I try to consciously restrain that because I'm too combative, I th think, sometimes, and uh, I've wasted too many hours of my life, you know, arguing with people who I don't think are, were necessarily people worth arguing with on social media. But it's because I, had, I think I had a, a fairly naive and idealistic sense until a few years ago that in a democracy you should talk to everyone, to your politician, as much as possible. And that anyone can, if you give a reasonable argument based on facts, that anyone can be won around by that. And I've 
certainly, I, I think that was wrong. I think that there is unfortunately a, a large chunk of the human race that is extremely influenceable by emotional arguments and that as we have now in a culture that doesn't value facts, uh, it's allowed a lot of folks to just float freely and pick up on whatever sentiment happens to wander past their screen on any particular day. I think you should ask that question from John. Oh, we have a question from Twitter. <laughs> I know. We're rolling that. in fans. Yeah. Um, so John Taylor asks, in the conclusion of Jacques Poitou's The Right Fight, Bernard Lord is quoted as saying that he would be surprised if we went back to the pattern we had in the middle of the 20th century where election after election after election, the Liberal Party won virtually every seat in New Brunswick. In your experience, what has changed within the PCs to seemingly bring this pattern back, and will it have a lasting impact on the linguistic compromise reached under Hatfield and Lord? It's a good question. I mean, first, at this point, if you look at the polls that came out this week, the PCs would still win a fair number of seats, in the, mainly in the south of the province. Uh, so that linguistic and cultural divide that we talked about a bit at the beginning of the, the conversation, I think is those, those issues are real. Uh, I think the difference is, is that we are no longer in the study of politics. I think we're again, we're, we're living in this massive species-wide social experiment around social media as we all are able to communicate with each other in a way that would have seemed like magic 30 years ago, forget about 100 years ago. And it's the line I always use for that is saying that we always used to wonder, you know, what's everyone thinking? And now we all know, and it's just horrible. <laughs> uh, and it's, but it's been a big, it's, it's this incredible moment for the human race where we have, we have a we have a technology that I think is probably transforming us more than anything since we learned to walk on two legs. I think it's bigger than language, bigger than any invention, any particular invention, because it really does. It allows this, this instantaneous, simultaneous, nearly global communication. And it allows people to build solidarities in groups, in group identities, regardless of where you live, without any worry. So it used to be that if you had a really crazy idea and you lived in your village, you'd go and talk to your neighbors, and the chances were pretty good that your village, you know, fellow villagers, well, that's, that's nice, no, that's very nice. See you at the next church barbecue, but you know, not going to pay anything, any attention to what you've got to say. Now, your idea could be 10 times nuttier than that, and you can go online, and 10 minutes later, you could have 2,000 really nutty friends who think exactly the same thing you do. Like Nick Pereira. Like, like Nick Pereira, yes. <laughs> well, fortunately, Nick's obsessions don't require other people to be in the room with him, so that's, uh, that works. The... So you've got these, this ability to create these uh, horrible, fact-free societies, really, which are much stronger than the, we're talking about the, the weakness of Anglo-New Brunswick identity. The anti-vaxxer, anti-COVID measure society is much stronger in its identity than ours, than ours is as a, as a linguistic community within this province. And until we start to figure out how to handle that and re start to rebuild real-world, face-to-face, human-to-human, animal-to-animal, positive animals connections with each other, I think we're always going to lose out to the ability to be emotionally unfettered, to say exactly what you want, exactly. As we all know, you can see the worst things in the entire universe on Twitter and social media in general as people say the, the most awful things deep in their souls, and then they find out other people who are just as dark and weird and twisted as they are. Um, and that is an incredibly disruptive force that I think is going to make the discussions that Jacques talked about in his book, uh, it's going to seem as anachronistic to us as, uh, I was going to say as witch trials, but of course the U.S., I think the Republican, uh, the, the, 
House is probably busy discussing a, a resolution on which trials right now, so I shouldn't say that. But we're, we're going to go back to a lot of horrible old things with a lot of new technology. And that's the part that scares me because I think that's going to eat liberal democracies alive. And people who can use the new technology without any fear at all are the authoritarians. I used the example of China earlier, where, yes, they accept that the technology is changing humanity and changing the way we live, and they are using that to control and repress and setting up structures for a dictatorship that I do not think will be easy to get rid of once it's even a little bit more formally entrenched. Um, and that stuff will come here very quickly. We're usually five, ten years behind the states and horrible things that roll across the border. It took us, we, we had disco about six, seven years later, so I think fascism will probably arrive around the same delay. And the problem we're going to have with that is it's going to be, we are so used, this is sort of the last consequence, of a last aspect of our collective racism. We spend a lot of time analyzing our past as a racist country and society. One of the areas where we persist in being racist is still believing that somehow we're the only people who can be racist and the only people who could run the world. And so we don't take the threats from other people in other places seriously. Or if we do, we're easily pushed back by someone saying, oh, we're being racist. I'm not being racist when I say the Chinese Communist Party is an existential threat to Canadians. That's a, just a straight-up statement of fact based on a hostile power saying they intend to replace our system of government with theirs. I don't want that, so I will do everything I can to fight that. But it's the conversations that we have around seats and provincial elections, again, some of these small things that is going to kill us. So just at the point when we need to have a, a politics that's both way better at delivering actual policies with the, the, the government that we actually have, and we need to have people who've got this sense of what the hell is happening in the world and how can we prepare our province to, to withstand it. Instead, we're totally ignoring the, the second part of that. No one's talking about the big picture things. And we're failing on the implementation because everyone's so afraid of upsetting interest groups that uh, even though, as I said earlier, they actually are, don't think are as powerful as uh, as we often feel they are. And in the end as well, the whole point of government is to make changes and choices, and the choices will piss people off. And so make sure that you prepare those properly, and then do it. But instead, we've seen, unfortunately, as we see the disaster with the French uh, language reforms going out now, all we're seeing is people's cynicism being increased by making things. Another government's again saying they're gonna make things better and making things worse. There is no reason for this to ever happen. And this sort of thing happens time after time here, and other provinces, and in Canada and other countries. So I, my argument is we need to get back to, I don't mean this in the religious sense at all, but in the sense of being disciplined and clear about a, a mission that goes beyond the work that we do every day. We need sort of a Jesuit movement in democratic politics, a sort of counter-reformation against the postmodernist crazy populism on the left and right that we've been infected with the last few years. So, you know, there are standards of truth, reality, service, commitment, compassion. We can define those and we can live by those. And if we do that, I think we might have some way out of this. But if we don't, we're just going to be eaten alive by the populists with their appealing narratives and by hostile states with incredibly effective government structures that aren't very good at giving happy, free lives to their citizens, but are really good at controlling everything. So something I've learned from you currently, like in this interview... <laughs> I talk too much? No, <laughs> you're very much like looking ahead. Like you have not predicted but you've said like from five ten years from now like quite often you very much look ahead as we like gear up to end our undergrads in poli sci not like specifically to us three but there are a lot of poli sci students listening hopefully um do you have like i guess advice for us moving forward 
Well, I'd ask you first, what do you want to do? At this point, do you have a sense of what you'd like to do when you finish your degree? Oh, me personally? Yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. I love this question. I would like to go to grad school okay. in Ottawa. Yeah. And I would like to do political science research. So you'd like to you like to work in the civil service or in politics after that, or the political science? Um, I'd like to be like a university professor. Yeah. yeah. So you want university professor? Law for me. Yeah. Civil service. Okay. That's, well, that's kind of three three pillars <laughs> of a civilization that we really need. So, I I think it's the careers that you're looking at, all three of you, really depend on whether we can keep the wheels on this system. And uh, yeah, there one of the I haven't talked much about universities, but something I found really troubling over the last 20 or so years has been just sort of this decline in what we expect of universities. That uh, the fact that we have reading and writing classes mandatory in universities now in the first year because the school system stopped teaching people to read and write. Oh. Which is is a huge, huge issue. Uh, I think that ultimately you end up by sort of de facto privatizing literacy that you have to go and pay tuition to get the literacy skills you should have been given in grade one and two. And it's in New Brunswick. We, that, that should be fixed, and I can't imagine anyone reversing that. Because hopefully there'll be no political party that comes in saying they don't want people to read anytime soon. Oh. But uh, it might I, said, I, I worked in Nepal for years, and they had a government there in the mid-20th century that had an explicit policy against letting people learn to read because they recognized that they learn to read them, they're going to want stuff, so that's not good. So let's oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, no. Exactly. So the all three of your careers depend on, first, the university system continuing to work properly, mm-hmm. uh, which I think we've got to get. That's my Jesuit idea links into universities very strongly. So what is the point of university? Because we sort of just had it on as extra levels of high school. That, so I'm 52. When I, when I first graduated, you had to have a B.A., and that would give you access to pretty much any job unless it was for a university job if you needed, a, obviously, a master's or a doctorate or whatever else. Now you've got entry-level positions that require a master's degree. Mm-hmm. So you've got the universities becoming an extension of the public school system, except you've got to pay for them, not offering you the skills that you necessarily need, whether it's for a job-ready program or an academic program, because you've then got to keep on going through higher and higher, more expensive, more time-consuming levels of education. And... We've also remained in this trap that a lot of countries did escape of believing that everyone has to go to university and not valuing people who don't, which I think is appalling. And we've, so we've ended up by perpetuating a lot of class divisions by looking down on people who are doing work that we absolutely need, which in many cases pays much better than if you have a university degree, and, uh, and, and also encouraging people to believe that unless they have a degree, somehow they're lesser, you know, lesser citizens. And this is uh, has caused us all sorts of demographic and productivity issues. Uh, you know, the, the law is going to be the big challenge. There is going to be do we do we still have a legal system that remains you know, fully independent? Today in Canada, I think you can say absolutely yes. But five years ago in the states, you would have said absolutely yes. And I don't think that's necessarily unanimously held opinion anymore. And the the politicization of the law is inevitable in a culture where we have abandoned any sense of what it means to be Canadian or to have a legal system. But those sort of existential uh, pillars of our society are things that we stop talking about in the process of dismantling an old racist, sexist, neo-imperialist past. But we didn't replace them with anything. And that's why you're seeing the 
I'd argue the excesses of you know what the right wingers call the woke culture on the left, where you just get people being increasingly obsessed with small differences that are ostensibly about dealing with poverty and exclusion, but usually seem to take place in the contexts of an upper middle class environment where people are actually arguing about jobs and positions, just using new words and new languages and new new levers to gain advantage for them, themselves, which is a normal human trait. But if we don't, again, come back to something that says, who are these Anglo Northerners, New Brunswickers, Canadians, people who live in the liberal world, smaller liberal world, as humans, who else is going to come up with those answers if we don't? And there's been a sort of a weird passivity, I think, that's fallen on us as a, as a species in the, in the West, in the rich countries, where we just sort of assume that this kind of amazing world where we kind of have everything and works most of the time, and you know, that uh, internet, electricity, roads, all that stuff, we just sort of think it's all just going to be there forever. But it can fall apart quickly, as we're seeing in the States. And that especially applies in the civil service with, as, uh, as I talked about in my resignation letter, one of the pillars of our civilization, which is, I think, one of the strongest arguments about why um, the broad British model has ended up being the most adaptable in the most places and allowed people to be lifted out of poverty and live better lives, is because the independence of the civil service has to be protected. And that doesn't mean they don't. You know, they can do what they want. They have to be subject to political control. That's why we invented democratic politics, because you always had a civil service. Every government, no matter how evil, has people who did the job for the government mm -hmm. and did what the bosses said. Our system is just the one that where you came up with a, an actually sort of democratic kind of universal system to put the people in charge who will tell those people what to do. But if you have them able to, if you have people who are elected able to go and directly influence and push and convince civil servants to lie, then that system falls apart. And then rather than getting people who are the best at their jobs wanting to join the civil service because they know they can make a difference and change the world, people who built our healthcare system and all these other, you know, these incredible, nearly unprecedented in the history of our species achievements that we just take again for granted, universal healthcare, universal education, all, this, all that stuff, that if you've got those big dreams, why would you go into the civil service if you know that some guy who got elected by 3,500 votes when the guy beating someone who won 3,200 votes, that guy's going to be able to, because the premier likes him, put him in a chair where he's going to be able to tell you to do things that are just wrong without any recourse. Why would you choose that job? So the whole idea of a civil service that offers fearless advice has to be maintained, and it's not there anymore in New Brunswick. It's one of the, again, one of the reasons I highlighted that in my resignation letter, is that independence of the civil service is critical. So of the th three jobs that you guys have talked about, the only one who I would give alternative career counseling to is which one? Because I just don't, I don't know if you got that. I just think the civil service is, is, is there are so many wonderful people doing their best, but the ability to do good work has been severely compromised. And I saw this morning people who I work with at education uh, who were testifying to public accounts this week. So education was up today. And there, there were people in my department who were up there saying that, you know, they having to present plans that I know they didn't want to have to present because I was there when they worked on the plans that they didn't want to present. And that's incredibly difficult for people, and some of those folks who are some of the best and hard, most hardworking people I've ever met in my life. And they put years of their work mm -hmm. into trying to put the best of their brains into documents that would make life better for kids in the province. And to have it just turned off like that because of one man's prejudices is, was for me personally extremely disappointing and upsetting 
but that's not important. What's important is the damage that this does to our system, because mm -hmm. our system depends on that independence. But if we don't have a cultural belief in what our civil service is supposed to do, we can't find some way to replace old ideas of God and country and king with something new, and we just let our institutions free float, then power will always circle the person who has the most power at any given moment. In our system, that's going to be the premier or the prime minister. And then we just hope that all we can rely on is just random luck that those people will have thought enough about these questions themselves in advance of being elected that they will do the right thing. And that's not enough of a check and balance for me. Yes. So, good luck, good luck, and let's talk. <laughs> so, I'll actually uh, go back a bit to, would be about 2018. You leave the NDP party after a bit of fanfare from within. Would you say, and now the description was that you're leaning a little too right for the party, which, see where that lies. Why did you choose the uh, uh, PCs rather than the Liberals? So both would be arguably right. Uh, what? First, I think the ideas of left and right are increasingly just bluntly stupid. Yeah. That yeah, how, how many? And we keep on talking about that. I mean, it's not going to kid people. Oh, you know, left versus. But it really is now. There is no one that I've heard in the PC party who said that we should privatize healthcare and education. Used to just two, two big files. Not one. And I did hear a few people, but not very many in the NDP, who would argue that you know we should abolish all businesses and have everything run by the government. So there are very few people in the mainstream political parties who disagree on a lot of the fundamental issues. And it's not that they, they agree on policies, it's that in most cases we just don't have any policies because we are still arguing about whether you're left or right, which is the sort of thing that mobilizes people to come out and work for you in elections, but has nothing at all to do with actually making anything better for anyone. So we have these sterile conversations, we talked about healthcare earlier, people say, no privatization, which means at this point, the status quo and we're going to let people die in emergency rooms and we're not going to let uh, pharmacists and nurse practitioners and a lot of other professionals use their scope of practice. But because we, someone throws the word out privatization, that frightens a big chunk of the population. And then you get the folks on the other side saying, you know, get rid of them, the government shouldn't be doing anything, we should have a private system. It's, these are idiotic positions that do not reflect our society. We need our healthcare system. If people get sick here, they won't be able to work in the nuclear power plants or any of Granby Power, they won't be able to work in the schools, and our society will fall apart. We are now dependent on a level of complex government that is so far beyond what any human imagined 100 years ago, when most of the time government's responsibility was having wars with other people, and then occasionally sending people around to steal tax money so that you could pay for your wars. And that was pretty much what governments did for all of human history until the 19th century. And it slowly evolved, and then rapidly evolved to the point that we have a welfare state. But all these left-right fights are about the battles that led that welfare state to be formed. It's now here. We now need it. It's indispensable to us continuing to stay alive. I'm not saying that metaphorically. Can you imagine if the government stopped working in New Brunswick? We'd be dead by the beginning of February, assuming the weather ever, ever gets properly permanent. And uh, so it's this lack of... We're, we're in this transition point. There's good, I would guess that by the time you guys retire, and hopefully there'll be pension rooms to actually support you when you do, that there will be a very different type of politics. And it will not be around these ideas of left and right, or if it is, left and right won't mean anything like it does now, the same way that the Republican Party I grew up with, the party of Reagan that stood up against Russia uh, and believed in small government, and it has now become a party that's pro-Russia, pro-authoritarian, and is in favor of big government as long as it's 
collect it. And uh, those changes happen fairly quickly, but we, I don't think we've even started having the right conversations yet. Which gets back to your point, is that I tend to be obsessed with possibly getting a deep-seated undiagnosed anxiety disorder, that, okay, what happens if this goes bad, this goes bad, this goes bad, what's going to happen five years out? But if we're not thinking in those sort of terms, then who else is going to? And yet you want your politicians thinking about mm. that stuff. It's supposed to be their jobs. Should we start with the, the end of it? Sure. Or do you guys have any more questions you want to ask? It's been fascinating. <laughs> it really has. My big question, I think all our big question is, do you plan on running in the next provincial election and under which party, if <laughs> any party? If you can tell us. Yeah. Sure. I, I'm a member of the Progressive Conservative Party. If Premier Higgs remains leader of the Progressive Conservative Party, I would guess he would probably not be particularly interested in signing my nomination <laughs> papers. I don't know why I think that. It's just this sort of feeling I've gotten. Go <laughs> but... Uh, uh, if there's a change in leadership, which I hope and I expect, um, then uh, it depends on uh, depends on some other factors. So who replaces them? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also new constituency boundaries, because we just got the new constituency uh, report that came out of November, I think it was. And so there won't, Fredericton West Hamwell, my current seat, won't exist in the next election. It's divided into, uh, according to the current interim uh, plan, which I would expect will probably end up yeah. adopted pretty much as it is. So I don't, I don't think it's a bad plan either. So it's, that's just one of those things that happens. Uh, so it depends. A lot depends. It's also, I'm putting a lot of my effort now that I've got more time being away from cabinet into uh, working on a project called Central Ice Canadians, which is trying to build a national pressure group to try and talk about some of the things that I've been rambling on about here, about can we please have some sort of grown-up politics that isn't Justin Trudeau saying that we have to spend our time apologizing for things but not actually doing anything and talking about how much the country used to suck. And then Pierre Polyer, who spends all of his time talking about how the country sucks now, and somehow that's an inspiring government message. And the NDP, who continue to believe that all problems can be solved just by spending vast amounts of cash, regardless of whether we have them or not. So it'd be nice. I don't know. I'd like a politics where maybe we could actually have an evidence-based politics, where mm-hmm. government did the things that evidence suggested government did well, and we put a lot of money into that, and then we stopped doing the things that government that evidence suggested clearly shouldn't be done by the government and not do those things that would seem like a a a good idea but maybe i'm just weird i have a question (laughs) based off of that um were your constituents upset with you when you resigned Uh, no no one of the the, uh one of the things that i was kind of dreading because i had i was saying earlier that i've sort of borne without the gene of worrying really whether people i don't know don't Mm. like me so, so anyone I know well, if they, they get upset with me, it hurts me more than it probably should. But someone that someone I don't know doesn't like me, doesn't bother me. But the tens of thousands of death threats and pieces of hate mail and stuff certainly had gotten me to the point that when I was getting ready to quit, obviously that was a stressful period as well because I was considering giving up a job that I loved and potentially abandoning a lot of teachers and, and, and students too to, a, to an uncertain future. Uh, so I had a lot of things weighing on me. And I remember thinking, oh, I just, I just don't want to deal with people being mad at me about this, you know. And uh, and it didn't happen. I had one constituent who emailed me and said, "I'm a bit concerned about what you did. Can you give me a call?" And other than that, I had hundreds of emails and messages and phone calls from not just my constituency but across the province and across the country, saying, "Good on you," because 
it's become unusual for politicians to rely on party principle. Mm. And that's no compliment to me. That's a sign of our system having slipped somewhat. And probably the reason I spend more time thinking about these things is the life I had before I got involved in New Brunswick politics, where I tried to talk about dem democracy and democratic institutions around the world in places where people were fighting and dying to, to build democracies. And uh, sorry, it didn't never caused me to doubt making the decision, but it certainly made me spook that it was going to be more negative than it was. But it's ended up being more extremely positive. I have another question. Sorry, keep, guys. Keep, keep going. Um, when you received your portfolio, could you talk about, like, there's very interesting ways first ministers select their cabinet. Could you maybe discuss what that process was like? Oh, sure. I mean, the, it was pretty normal. The Premier just called me up and said, yeah, Dominic, I'd like you to be the Minister of Education and Early Childhood Development. Um, so prior to that, the Premier had, uh, his staff had organized meetings with, I believe with every single MLA who'd been elected in 2018, uh, to just chat what do people want to do. You always get some people who just don't want to be in cabinet for whatever reasons, right? They're not maybe their health, their age, or just they don't want to put the time in, they've got young kids, whatever. Uh, and other people who've got, I would, I would like to be in cabinet, but I only want to do this one job. And then as a premier, you've got to look at the regional balance as well, mm. uh, gender balance, I mean, all those other political considerations tie into it. So in 2018, there were just the, those interviews, and then I got the call. In 2020, there were interviews, which I don't, I don't think I actually had one, because I guess I was, I think everyone was pretty clear about what I stood for at that point. Um, but we also had a... Uh, sort of a Myers-Briggs type test that was given out to everyone to fill in. Oh. Which I, which I was kind of irritated about at the time. Uh, just on the grounds that this is not... I view being an MLA as being closer to being in religious service than I do to a normal job. It's not a... Don't mean religious in terms of anything to do with a, with a supernatural force, but in terms of its service. It's not about... Uh, you're not turning up for a nine-to-five job. And so I was kind of concerned about treating it as, as, a, as a managerial job. It's not. It's a, it's a, being an MLA or a politician, is a, you've been given the power to express you know, the, the feelings of your constituents and to use your judgment to decide what's best. And that's, there's just really, really aren't any other jobs like that. Uh, so that was the only difference then, because I had this little questionnaire thing. And then, uh, then I got another call from the Premier saying, you to continue in that job. So it wasn't a big surprise. I, education had been my sort of obsession in politics when I was NDP leader, and going on about literacy rates and other things because of my time overseas when I saw how if you don't have a strong education system, I don't think you can really have a democracy. And uh, I'm trying to think of anything else about the process that was interesting. I think that was about it. I mean, the, the difficult part with that for a leader is calling the people up who you are not putting in cabinet or taking yeah. out of cabinet, even worse. And but to, you know, to the Premier's credit, those people, none of those people quit or cause any fuss about that. So. Great. Well, on the uh, topic, it's a couple questions back now, but just discussing the future of the leadership of the party, was there a sentiment that when Chris Austin and the People's Alliance was brought in that there was maybe a shoehorning to leadership? Or Ooh, shoehorning. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And certainly it was something that, given the Premier's past, as someone who tried to become leader of the Confederation of Regions Party, certainly I always had a bit of a concern that 
that uh, he viewed sort of Chris as a prodigal son who sort of also managed to live the life that maybe he'd wanted to, becoming leader of a small oh. populist party, but actually doing what Core, I mean, Core won more seats, but exploded in spectacular fashion in a way that the Alliance didn't. Um, and uh, certainly, I mean, clearly the Chris Austin's values and the values that the Premier is now publicly expressing in a way that he certainly didn't to his party or to the public for most of the time he was Premier. Uh, th th I think they line up. I don't believe they line up with the values of the Progressive Conservative Party of New Brunswick and the Constitution that we all signed on to. Would you ever run for leader of the Progressive Conservatives? I've had lots of people ask me that, and I've been around the, the sort of world long enough to know you shouldn't sort of never say never. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a lot of people even trying to organize for me before the uh, before I resigned. Resigning, though, I think, and I knew this in doing it, you spend a lot of political credit, right? There's a yeah. lot of political capital. And there's the, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but I think it was a Shakespearean line about he who wields the knife never shall never wear the crown. And I sort of, I think I was sort of in that position, being the first to come out very publicly and say, I think this is, there's something has gone wrong in this government, and it's not about the cabinet, because it's continued to, I think that most New Brunswickers would be pretty pleased with the job that most of their cabinet ministers are doing most of the time if they were around the same table as I'd been at. But there needs to be a change in the premier, for sure. And just saying that makes it harder for me to start a leadership race of any sort. Mm. So, who knows? I mean, it depends on what's happened. And again, never say never to things, but uh, a lot of what I'm putting my effort into right now is this federal project, partly because since I was elected as a provincial politician, I think the things that affect New Brunswick are now on a much larger scale and as we've talked about a lot, I don't think we're paying any attention to them at all. And I'm very scared about inaction on a global and national level and the impact that's going to have on New Brunswick. Because yeah, we've got we're incredibly rich by a lot of by a lot of comparators, but uh, we're not self sufficient. We don't we don't have the tools that we need to be able to survive for a long time on our own. And I think we need to start thinking in those terms. There's no New Brunswick Sovereignty Act coming up. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> don't make me. <laughs> Any, any more questions? Or? I think I'm good. You're good? I'm good. Have anything you want to say to the audience about anything and everything? Hey, we, we live in a fantastic province, despite the fact that we got challenges. And the one thing I'd ask is, please take your responsibilities as a citizen seriously. The one thing that I found really sad in this job is how there's parts of human nature that we like the idea that the people in power are far away, unapproachable, inaccessible mm -hmm. and unaccountable and a hell of a lot of people died to build the system that we have where that is not true and where all of us and this is great because the fact that we're sitting around this table 150 years ago we would have all known who each other's parents were and what our relative position in our society was and that doesn't matter at all anymore and that that was built by people consciously fighting for the rights of women, for minorities, and just for normal people to be able to start a business and live a life without the government forcing them to do stupid things, but the government actually offering good things. This system is going to fall apart unless the people listening to this, who are by definition weirdos more interested in public life <laughs> than the average person, if you guys don't get out there and help defend and build this system, rebuild it, there are all kinds of problems, but they can be fixed using the tools that we have, scientific method, evidence-based policy. If we use those tools, we can in 20 years, having a life of unimaginable abundance and freedom and equality with the, the new technologies that are being invented. But we need to have that 
sense of optimism and hope again based on reality rather than again just constantly imagining that the apex of the world was some version of the 1960s and maybe this is just to do with the baby boomers and that'll pass as they do but I shouldn't say that because I need a lot of them to vote for me but it's uh it's a problem right it's that we have a society that is uh, we're so backward looking at this point the, prog the progressives are backward looking progressives look back to some ideal that never existed in this perfect world and then the conservatives look back even further neither of those are real right now this is amazing we've mm -hmm. got to build it we've got to defend it that's it Okay, good. Thank you. I'll do a, I'll do a little outro. This has been the manifesto. I'm your host Logan with my co-host Emily and Nick. Uh, today our guest was Dominic Cardi, MLA for Fragton West Hanwell, and the former Education Minister in New Brunswick. Thank you, Dominic. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> okay.